Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. It's a, uh, it's a wonderful time of the year. It really is. It's a wonderful time of the year. Life slows down just enough, just enough that for many of us, we can deliberately focus our attention on the birth of Christ and what it tells us about what God's doing in and through him for the world and for us personally. And that's what we're going to be focusing our attention on this morning, the birth of Christ and what it signifies. And if you strip away all of the Christmas traditions that you may have, and many of them are great. Your family probably has Christmas traditions. My family has Christmas traditions, and those are all fine and good. But if you strip away all of the Christmas traditions, and if you strip away and turn off all of the cheesy Hallmark movies, which should be banned just because of how bad the plot lines are, but if you strip them all away and if you turn them all off, and if you get away from the entire commercial industry that's been built upon this moment, what you'll realize is what Christmas signifies. What it signifies is the moment that God launches a divine rescue mission. It's a divine rescue mission. God personally enters into his material universe. Now, we say that on a Sunday morning, and we kind of just nod our heads and say, yeah. But if you really slow down and consider that, God enters in to his material universe. <laughs> that's, that's just mind-blowing. That in and of itself, it's mind-blowing. He enters into the material universe to rescue it, to restore it, to renovate our hearts, and then to rule over us as our gracious and great king. That's just amazing. That's what he's doing in the, Christ, in the message of Christmas, and it's all proclaimed in Jesus' birth. So let's have a look. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, the famous passage. And uh, this morning, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, and I'm going to move through them pretty quickly because my assumption is, if you're a Christian, you know this passage probably pretty well. And so the trick for you, the, the, the work you're going to have to do this morning is to read the passage without turning off your brain. And I know that's sometimes hard when you come to church because a lot of people think church is the place where you go to turn off your brain. That's not the case at all. Um, we're gonna, I want you to keep your brain fully engaged and I want you to look at this with fresh eyes because what it signifies to us is incredibly important. So I'm going to read through it pretty quickly, and then we're going to come back, and I want to look at three truths that Christmas signifies about what God's doing in and through the birth of Christ. So let's begin. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Luke tells us, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Luke starts off by telling us that this is not a fairy tale, right? This is not a fable. Fairy tales and fables and Star Wars, they start off with a long, long time ago and in a faraway distant land or a faraway country. Um, those type of intros, intros like once upon a time, 
That's, that signifies that this story didn't actually happen. Or we don't really know what if it happened, but it teaches such a nice moral point that we want to believe like it actually happened. But notice, that is not what Luke does here. He does not say once upon a time in a faraway and distant land. That's not what Luke does. Luke tells us this is a true story. And the events happened in time and space. This happened in a point of history while Caesar Augustus was reigning. And for those of you who are history buffs, um, this is Julius Caesar's great nephew Octavian, who after uh, Mark Anthony's involvement with Cleopatra, he won a decisive battle and was appointed um, by the Senate in 27 BC. And Caesar Augustus's reign, it was known for its peaceful character, which is why sometimes you'll hear the phrase Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. And, and that's, that's what Caesar Augustus initiated. And so Luke begins to tell us that in the period of, or in the days of, the emperor that was known for his reign of peace, God raises up the child of peace, the one who will ultimately usher in lasting peace, the one Isaiah prophesies about, who shall be called the prince of peace. So Luke puts the birth of Christ, the birth of the king, in its historical setting in the days of, uh, uh, of Augustus. And Caesar ordered a census to be taken, and Quirinius is enforcing that census, which is the reason why Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem when her time comes. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Some of your translations will say was great with child. So they make this trip. And by the way, the trip was, um, it was no picnic. From Nazareth to Bethlehem, that was about a 90 miles, 90 miles worth of a trek. So think about it. Think from Eagle Point to Roseburg. On foot or on the back of a donkey. And again, Mary was great with child, meaning... She's ready to pop. She's great with child. She's ready to have this thing. Now, um, not a part of the main deal, kind of a sidebar here, but let me ask the women in here who have been great with child and who have been ready to give birth. With this nearly 100-mile trek while you're great with child, be a little bit of an inconvenience for you. <laughs> Can you imagine the little side comments that Joseph caught the entire trek <laughs> all the way up there. Of course, it's your family. We have to go do this because of your family. He would have caught 100 miles, 90 miles worth of little side comments from Mary. This little trip would have been a, a huge inconvenience. If, if you are a pregnant lady with, ready, to, ready to give birth, would you have done everything, everything, absolutely everything within your power to get out of this trip? Of course you would have. And yet, she couldn't. She just couldn't. And consider this. More often than not, the things that we see as major inconveniences, the things that we would get out of them if we could, but we simply can't, those are oftentimes the very things that God wants in our lives. To shape us, to mold us, 
to fulfill his purposes in us and through us, just like traveling nearly 100 miles while Mary's great with child. God uses, now think about it, because what does God do here? He uses a secular governmental leader and his decree to fulfill his promise that a special ruler would rise from Bethlehem. You mean to tell me that God can use a secular government to bring about his purposes? Wow, yeah, that's exactly what's taking place. And God's providence is seen all the way throughout this. And so when you find yourself in painful, frustrating situations in your life, things that you would get out of them if you could, but you simply can't, you, you legitimately can't get out of them, you can be certain in those times that God is providentially working behind the scenes to fulfill his purposes in you and through you. So let me ask you this. Let me put a fine point on this. What situations in your life right now are out of your control and they cause you to be incredibly frustrated? Are there situations like that in your life right now? Situations that are really quite painful? They're really quite an inconvenience. What situations in your life are painful and frustrating and you'd get out of them if you could, but you simply can't? You see, identify those because those are the situations, those are the experiences, those are the events in your life that God's using. And the response on our part isn't to try and figure it all out. It isn't even necessarily to resist it but to trust in those moments that you're really, really frustrated by something. And this happens to me too. So when I'm, when I'm talking to you, just know that I'm, I'm talking to myself as well. When you're really, really frustrated by something, you have to remind yourself that God's working. And I found when I'm going through something that's incredibly painful, incredibly frustrating, I have to tell myself. Like I have to talk out loud to myself. My God is working. I have to tell myself over and over and over again that God is at work right now, working all situations, even painful ones, and even events that I would get out of him if I could, but I can't. He's using those things for, his, for my good and ultimately for his glory. You have to fall back. When you don't know what you, what's coming forward, what you don't know what, when you don't know what's going on, you have to fall back on what you do know. And you do know, if you're a Christian, Romans 8.28, that God, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And that all things there in Romans 8.28, it certainly includes the things that are painful and frustrating and are major inconveniences. So you gotta keep telling yourself, when you're in these type of situations like Mary was here, you gotta keep telling yourself, God is at work in this painful, frustrating situation and I'll trust him. Because if you don't, listen, why do you gotta keep doing that? Because if you don't, the natural human response is to doubt whether or not God loves you. If you don't keep reminding yourself of gospel truth, the natural human response is you'll start to doubt, well, maybe God doesn't love me. You'll start to question. You, your, your response will be to doubt whether God loves me or not, whether he's really in control or not. That's a sovereignty issue. Maybe he's not really in control. Whether I'm saved or not, that's a salvific issue. Whether he's really good or not. Or you'll begin to question if I'm being punished for something. And that's moralism, that's not the gospel at all. That's flat moralism. And so you gotta keep telling yourself over and over and over again, my God is a providential God. And he uses all things, 
all things, even the, really the things that I kind of quite despise. He uses all things to bring about his good purposes, and I'm going to trust him, even with pain and even with frustration. He uses circumstances beyond our control for his certain purposes in our lives. And that's exactly what's taking place here with Mary and Joseph. It's exactly what's taking place. God uses Caesar Augustus' decree to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that the promise of Scripture that says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem would come about. Does that make sense? Okay, back to the text. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And you know that feeling if, if you've had a child, everything's in, you're moving in a hurry at that moment. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Luke, he states Jesus' birth very simply. When, her, when Mary's time came, the only available place, because remember, everybody's coming to Bethlehem for, because of the census. The only available place for this little family was, was one that was usually occupied by animals. And we don't really know what it was. Maybe, maybe the animal shelter was a cave um, because that was popular. But God comes into human history, enters into the material universe, born in an animal shelter, and then placed in, this, in, a, in a feed trough, essentially. The humility of Christ to come all the way down. This is the way he comes, humbly. And in the same region, verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, hmm. keeping watch over their flock by night. Um, I said this on, on uh, Friday night when, when you guys were here for the, the Christmas carols and uh, Pi Social. A shepherd was, um, was not a job you aspired to. It was a job you were stuck with, right? You were considered unlearned. You were considered a liar if you were a shepherd. It was a job that left you ceremonially unclean. And therefore, because of all of those factors, they were outcasts in Israel. Uh, high society had considered them outcasts. The religious establishment considered them outcasts because they were perpetually unclean. And so they're out and the, they're doing their thing out in the field taking care of these these uh, animals, in verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, this, this angel gets the best, best job of all, all of them. He gets the highlight of his angelic career. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the anointed one. He's the anointed one. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So these, these 
angels. They come to these lowly shepherds and they say, I bring you great news. I bring you good news of great joy. Well, what's the news? These guys, these shepherds, they're, you know, they're, they're eyes are probably like, what in the world is going on here? Well, what's the news? And what are they so excited about? What are they saying? What's taking place in the birth of this child? And why are these angels so gosh darn excited? And why is this news considered good news? Well, the angels say three things that God's doing in the birth of Christ that that we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. What are they saying? The first thing they say is this, that God's going to rescue and restore the world not simply judge it. Now let that sink in. What are these angels all excited about? And what are they saying that's happening at the birth of Christ? They're saying, first thing they're saying is that God's going to rescue and restore the world, not simply judge it. Now the angel, he comes to him. He says, among you is born in the city of David a savior. A savior. So terror, that, that's, a, that's a rescuer. And then in verse 14, The host of angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Now that's the concept of shalom that's brought about by this person who was born the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. So the first thing the angels say is that God's going to rescue and restore the world, not simply judge it. Now what you'll find, what you'll find typically amongst Christians, um, or better put, amongst groups of Christians, is that either they'll emphasize the judgment of God. They'll emphasize the judgment of God. Some, some groups of Christians will emphasize the judgment of God, and that's typically your really conservative, fundamental churches. So one group will emphasize the judgment of God. Other groups, however, will emphasize the restorative healing work of God in the world or on the world particularly in the creation. They'll emphasize the healing, restorative work of God, and at the same time, they'll de-emphasize the judgment of God. And that's typically uh, liberal churches. But note, here in the text, it's both of those things combined. It is the judgment of God, but it's also the peace of God. The judgment, listen, the judgment has to happen. Because if the judgment doesn't happen, then real love cannot happen. God can't pour out his ultimate love that he's always existed in and he intends to fill his entire creation with until the evil in the world is judged, until the evil of the world is judged and purged. And I shouldn't have to tell you that there's real evil in the world. Especially everything our world has endured the last couple of months. But there is real, tangible evil in our world. And if you were raised in our culture, you may not have a category for it. But the Bible does. The Bible does. What the Bible categorizes it it as is it's all the fallout and the effects of sin. And in order for God's love to to be fully poured out, In order for God's love to be fully poured out, which will restore humanity and the cosmos back to God himself, evil has to be avenged. But it's not our job to actually avenge it, which is why God tells us, vengeance is mine. I will repay it. 
And if you've never had real evil committed against you, uh, if you've ever had real evil committed against you, then you know it has to be avenged. And even if you haven't had real evil uh, committed against you, you still sense that it needs to be avenged. And it's the reason why movies tap into this feeling within us, right? You watch some movies. They, and movies tap into this emotion all the time. You watch some movies where something that is truly evil has happened, and everything inside of you wants it to be avenged. Is that not true? You watch something that's really, really dark on TV sometime, or you watch, I'll give you an example, you watch an old Western, or a new Western, or Yellowstone. For those of you who are watching Yellowstone, re-watching it until the new season comes out. And something evil has happened, and you long for that to be avenged. And when it happens, when it's actually avenged, there's a feeling inside of you that says, yes, that was good, that was right. You know why that is? Because you sense, you sense, you have an intuition, it's an intuition, that evil is real and it must be dealt with. So the judgment theme is critical, and evil must be dealt with. Well, how will God deal with it? How will God, how will he judge and avenge and purge all the evil? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Hold on to that question. I'll come back to it in a moment, because we'll see how in a moment. So note, just note, the judgment theme is crucial. But on the other hand, and everybody loves the judgment theme, especially in really conservative churches, but on the other hand, the purpose of judgment isn't simply judgment. And you got to catch that, okay? The purpose of judgment isn't simply judgment. And a lot of times, some Christians, they, um, they're really quite happy about the judgment theme. They look at the world and they say, wow, the world's a mess. They're really angry with the world and they're really quite happy that it's going to be judged. They're really quite happy about that. And while it's a critical theme, it's not all that God's doing in and through this child. Because his ultimate purpose isn't simply to judge. What's his ultimate purpose? It's to bring peace upon earth. Remember the angels say, glory to God in the highest. We just sang it in Excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. And that word peace, um, that's the Greek equivalent of the, Hebrew word, of the Hebrew word shalom. And I've told you this before, but shalom is not just the end of hostility. A lot of times when we think of peace, we think, well, there's an end of hostility. But it's not just that. It is that, but it's more than that. What shalom is, it's a full-orbed sense of peace. Full-orbed sense of peace. So peace with God, peace with the creation, peace with your fellow man, and peace within yourself. That's, that's the idea of shalom. It's human flourishing in all dimensions. And that's amazing. Human flourishing in all dimensions and in all directions. It's, it's, that's shalom, physical health, emotional health, relational health, spiritual health to the max. Now think about that for a second because you haven't experienced one second of that in this age. You haven't had one second of that in your life. You've never had every relationship in perfect peace. You've never had that. Even, even in the best of marriages, you've never had perfect peace relationally at every moment of every day. 
You want to know how I know? Because <laughs> I'm married. That's how I know. And you end up in my office. That's how I know. You've never been completely at peace with yourself ever since you were an infant. The moment you lost infancy stage, you've never been completely at peace with yourself, either physically or emotionally. And we've never been at peace with the entire creation. But listen, this is God's intention. This is God's intention. And this, this idea of shalom, this is what's missing from this age. And it's what we all crave and it's what we try to generate and manufacture at Christmas. This is why all the images on Christmas cards are idyllic. It's why all of the Christmas movies are idyllic and peaceful. And it's why even people who don't worship Jesus and they don't really celebrate his birth, they celebrate Christmas. Why? Because they hope. And again, they have a sense. They have an intuition. They're hoping for some shalom. And they're buying and they're wrapping gifts and they're decorating their houses and they're drinking enough eggnog until their mind and their tongues are really lubricated because they're hoping by doing so they'll have a moment of shalom because this age doesn't have any. doesn't have any lasting shalom. We get tastes of it, sure. We get small tastes of it. We get moments of it, what I like to call echoes of a distant past. But for the most part, our world doesn't have peace. But this is what God's bringing. This is what God's bringing. And this is why the angels are so gosh darn excited. This is why whoever the first angel was that got tapped by the triune God and said, hey, guess what? You get to be the one who make the, makes the announcement. Can you imagine? Talk about a job promotion for an angel, man. You've been waiting centuries for this. All of a sudden, the triune God comes and says, you're going to get to be the one who makes the announcement. And he's like, great. Which king am I going to? He goes, oh, no, no. You're not going to a king. You're going to shepherds. <laughs> he's like, what? That's not right. And he's, no, you're going to shepherds because the king who's coming is humble. But the angels are so excited because they, they know with the birth of this child, it's the beginning of the end for evil and death. That's why they're so excited. It's the beginning of the end for evil and death. It is D-Day for the Lord. He says, I'm going to put an end to all of this. It's the divine rescue mission. I'm instituting it right now. By the way, again, I said this on Friday, but a little repetition is good for everybody. Um, the gospel is the only message that deals with the seriousness of evil in the world at both a human and a structural level and promises to heal it. The gospel is the only message that promises that. And if you don't believe the gospel, then you don't actually have any real basis for any type of hope that any of this is going to get better. Only in the gospel, only in the gospel, is there hope that humanity will be healed and the entire material universe will be healed. So what's happening in the birth? What's happening? Why are the angels so excited? God's going to rescue and restore the world. Starting with the souls that are in it and then continuing to expand to the entire creation itself. Now let that sink in for a moment. Because what it means for you individually is that you will be healed of everything. Of everything. And the life that you've always longed for, if you're in Christ, will be given to you. You'll be restored to wholeness and health. 
You'll have clear thinking and clear vision without needing coffee or glasses. This is, this is amazing. This news is marvelous. You will be restored to full health, emotional health, spiritual health, physical health, relational health, all of it. You know what that means for you if you're a Christian? Here's what it means. No matter how old you are, no matter how broken down your body may feel right now, what it means for you is that your best days are actually all in front of you. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? That your best days, no matter how old you may be right now. I remember I was, I was preaching at Jacksonville Presbyterian years ago. And it was a lady's birthday. She was uh, 92 years old. And I said, you know, because you're in Christ, your best days are always in front of you. Do you believe that? She said, I've never thought about it that way, but I sure like the sound of that. <laughs> and that's true. If you're in Christ, your best days are always in front of you. So why are the angels excited? Why is this good news of great joys? Because God is going to rescue and restore the creation, not simply judge it. Here's the second thing. How's he going to do it? That's the second thing to note here. He's going to rescue and restore, not by philosophy, nor by religion, but through a person. This child. That's how. Look at verse 11. The angel comes and says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David... A Savior who is Christ the Lord. So God's doing this through a person. He's going to rescue and restore through a person, this child. Not through religion, not through philosophy. Religion is where people find out what God wants or what a plurality of gods want, and they try their best to do it. It's a ladder system is what it is where you work, 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 you climb your way up to God to try to appease him. You work yourself to the bone, you work yourself up the corporate ladder, the religious corporate ladder to God. That's religion. You, you do this, you do that, you avoid this, you avoid that. You, religion says you're broken, you need to be fixed. And everybody says, yeah, I know that. I know that I'm broken, I know I need to be fixed. You gotta obey these rules, you gotta, you gotta do this, you gotta practice these rituals. Do all of these things, do all of these steps. That's religion. And that is not what this is. Did you notice that? That is not what this is. Well, what is this? This is unto you a Savior is born. That is a completely different paradigm. That is not religion at all. He's not doing it through religion, and he's not doing it through philosophy either. Philosophy is wonderful, and much of it's profound and interesting. But have you noticed... It hasn't solved anything. It's great. It's great to read. It's interesting, but it hasn't solved the evil in our world. In fact, like religion, it's actually contributed to it. Have you noticed that? Of course you have. And here's the thing. Humanistic philosophy has tried to solve the problem of evil. Because every human knows, every human knows that humanity is broken. Every human knows that there's real evil in the world. Well, but humanistic philosophy says, well, we'll just, we'll, we'll tinker. We'll tinker with humanity and that'll, that'll solve the problem of evil. And we've tried everything. We have tried absolutely everything. We've tried exhortation. Just try a little bit harder. We've tried legislation. 
We'll pass laws that'll keep people moral. We've tried education. Well, if we get, just get people to think the right way, everything else will figure, be figured out. We've tried regulation. We'll regulate certain things. And of course, we've tried medication. If we just give them enough whatever in the state of Oregon, we can have whatever anytime you want. You can possess it. It's great. It's that, we've tried medication. Now listen, we've tried all of them. Now listen what I just said. We've tried exhortation, legislation, education, regulation, and of course medication. What the gospel actually tells you is none of those things will work. What, you, what humanity actually needs is regeneration. We need to be made new. We need to be born again. And the gospel tells us that sin and evil are so pervasive and that ideas and effort can't save us. Sin and evil are so pervasive that our ideas, humanistic philosophy, and our effort, religious discipline, can't save us. But God can. God himself, in the person of Christ, has to save us. You know what that means? It's not up to us to fix this. Because the gospel is not philosophy. And the gospel is not religion. The gospel is... God is going to fix us because humanity has screwed it up. In the Garden of Eden, what was humanity in? Please tell me you remember this because we just spent a year in the book of Genesis. What was humanity in in the Garden of Eden? A state of shalom. What did they have? They had peace with God. They had peace with creation. They had peace with one another, which is why Genesis tells us they were naked and unashamed. And they had peace with themselves because sin had not entered the garden yet. Is that a little Christmas hymn on your cell phone? (laughs) You don't have to be sorry. First time a cell phone went off when I was preaching, it was my wife's. So there's there's no shame here. And I just saw my wife gave me the look, so I owe her lunch. Um, So there's no problem with that. Listen, humanity was in a state of shalom in the garden. I've got to get back to where I was. They were in a state of shalom. They had peace with God. They had peace with the creation. This was before thorns and thistles. It was abundant at that time. They had peace with one another. This is why they were naked and unashamed. And they had peace with self because there was no sin. There was nothing, nothing wrong in, you know, inwardly with them yet. And then Adam fell. Adam fell and sin was introduced into the world and with it, evil. And like a virus, it just continued to spread. It continued to spread all the way throughout humanity. And God says the only way to fix it, the only way to fix it is if I personally enter into my creation in order to rescue it. And that's what he's doing. So he's going to rescue and restore the creation, but not through philosophy, not through religion, but through a person who will be born materially, who will live perfectly. He lives the life you and I were supposed to live in complete obedience to God the Father and in step with God the Spirit. So he lives perfectly. He dies unjustly. He dies the death that you and I deserve to die, but never will. And then he's raised bodily. And the Lord says that the only way 
then this rescue mission can succeed is if a savior, a messiah, the king in God's kingdom, is if he comes and he's a willing victim to the evil of the world, thereby absorbing it and draining it of its power. And this child, this child that we just read about, that was placed in this rough cradle, will 30 years later hang on a cross to absorb the judgment of God for all of the sin, all of the evil ever committed against him. And when you trust him, when you trust him, you can be restored to God, not through your effort, but through his. So God's gonna rescue and restore humanity and the creation itself, not through religion, not through philosophy, but through a person, this child born to Joseph and Mary and presented to the lowly shepherds. That's, that's just the best news ever. Now what else the angels say here is that he's doing this only to those with whom he's well pleased. That's the third thing the angels say. Well, who is he doing this for? Only those to whom he's well pleased. The heavenly hosts, they come and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's well pleased. Which means he's not pleased with everybody. And I'll tell you what, that is shocking to our senses. When you first hear that news that God is not pleased with everybody, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been raised in the church, when you hear this news that God's not pleased with everybody, that is shocking to our senses because we tend to think of God as our great Bob Barker in the sky. Do we not? We tend to think of him as our great big, our great big Bob Barker in the sky with smiley face and he just says, come on up. No, that's not who he is. He's just, that's not who he is. That's not the case. He's not pleased with everybody. And we think, well, that's not very nice of him. Well, let me ask you this. Are you pleased with everybody? Are you? We're not even pleased with everybody. We're not even pleased with everybody in our own house. So why do we deny God that opportunity? He's not pleased with everybody. But there is one person with whom God is pleased. There is one person with whom God is pleased. This child, at his baptism, when Jesus is baptized, God says, behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So there's one person in the history of humanity with whom God is well pleased. Well, how in the world is that good news for you and me? Well, turn with me to Colossians, the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is after the book of Philippians. And Philippians is after the book of Ephesians. Colossians chapter 1. Once you're in Colossians 1, skip down to verse 15. Listen to what Paul says about Christ. Paul says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers 
or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Oh, man. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, now listen to this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Oh, whoa. How is this good news for you and me? Because when you come to Christ, you're brought into this reality. He takes the blame he bears the burden for all of the evil that you've personally committed. And when you trust him, you receive the credit and you bear the honor for all that he's done. This is the great exchange. That is the most amazing news ever, right there. He bears the burden and bears the blame for all of the evil that you've ever personally committed. And when you come to him, you receive the credit and you bear the honor for all that he has done. That's amazing. You're clothed in his righteousness and you're enlivened by his living spirit. Now, do you see why the angels say, I bring you good news of great joy that's for all people? Meaning all sorts of people. Anybody and everybody can trust him. Anybody and everybody can trust him and know that in Christ, they're pleasing to God the Father. That's just outstanding. Let me ask you, in and of yourself, do you recognize that you're not pleasing to the Father? In and, of yourself, in and of yourselves, with the sin that you know that you have, the evil that you know that you've committed, do you recognize that the Father wouldn't be pleased with you? But that in Christ, when you come to him and you put repentant faith in him, you receive everything that he has done. It's given to you. His grace, his righteousness is given to you. And then in him, you're made perfectly pleasing to the Father. That's, you receive sonship. That's the most amazing news ever. This is why it's great news of great, good news of great joy. So let me ask you, are you one of those with whom he is well pleased? You can be today, right now. If you're not, if you're here, if you're visiting on a Christmas Eve, we're thrilled to have you. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you you can become one of his right now by trusting in this one who was born in a manger and then who went to the cross to bear the judgment, to absorb the evil in order for you to receive new life in his name. So in order for you to live with God now and forevermore. Is that not amazing? It's amazing. Why don't you stand and we'll pray and we'll sing and I'll let you go.
I told the children's ministry my Christmas gift to you this morning is I will keep it under 45 minutes. So you're welcome. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous news of Christmas, that you have personally entered into it to rescue it, to rescue us, and to redeem your creation. And Father, we long for the day. While we know D-Day has come, we long for V-Day, Lord, the day that you will return and your mission will be complete, and we will stand upon a renewed creation and we will look our Savior in the eye. But until that day, Father, we pray that we would be about your work, we would be about, about your mission here on earth, that we would be people who would extend your grace and your peace as far and as wide as we're possibly able to, that your word and your ways would continually shape our heart's affections around the truth of the gospel so that we too can live humbly and purposefully upon the earth. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.